I invite you to take your copies of God's Word, turn them to Matthew chapter 7. The Gospel of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, presented as the first of the four Gospel witnesses. We have been in a series of sermons in Matthew's Gospel. We've been in a sort of micro-series in the Sermon on the Mount, which is presented to us in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We come this morning to Matthew 7 and verse 12. Please follow along as I read. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come before this great commandment, uh, this golden rule, this royal law, this word from our Lord, we pray that what, you, what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, and what we are not you would make us, for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, Matthew seven twelve presents us with what many term the golden rule. It is an ethical principle recognized universally as much for its brilliance and profundity as for its brevity and pith. Uh, it is heavy in ex, uh, excuse me, ethical weight. It is far-reaching in its moral implications, and it is masterfully concise and punchy with respect to words. It reads almost like a proverb and is characteristically Solomonic, both in its striking simplicity and its penetrating wisdom. Uh, it is a saying that has, like most of the great sayings, uh, successfully risen above the trappings of the original context in which it was embedded, and has even escaped the context of the entire religion out of which it arose. Uh, one thing I can guarantee you is that in the case of the overwhelming majority of instances in which this rule will be spoken today in our world, uh, it will be entirely without reference to the Sermon on the Mount, entirely without reference to Matthew's Gospel, and likely without reference to Jesus Christ and Christianity at all. Uh, that is both a tremendous credit to the genius of the Golden Rule, as well as a spiritual travesty. Uh, from one vantage point, the Golden Rule may be isolated from its context and read and treated as a one-off statement. Uh, it is, after all, a great saying, and like many other great sayings, it may in some sense stand alone. You hear it, and something of its meaning is immediately understandable and appreciated, even if you don't know from whence the saying originally emerged. Uh, but there are at least a couple of dangers in isolating this rule from its context, at least two that I'll mention. Uh, first, uh, if we isolate the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, if we isolate it completely from its context, uh, it can create cover for a purely secular understanding and application of this rule. Uh, so even secular and pagan ethicists will often employ this rule. But the way in which they do so will become, in different cases, altogether humanistic or legalistic or morally untethered and will miss entirely the heart of what Jesus means to convey by this saying. A second danger uh, by taking the rule out of its context and treating it without reference to its context. 
If you divorce this rule from its actual context, you will divorce the rule from its actual content. If you divorce the rule from its actual context, I would submit to you we divorce the rule from its actual content. What does it look like to treat others as we want to be treated? And when we read this verse in its context, we come to appreciate that it is meant to function as a kind of summary of some very specific teaching from our Lord. It is a summary of his teaching in this sermon, this Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. What we will appreciate if we read this verse in its context is that the conduct it calls forth is meant to take a certain course. A doing unto others as we would have them do unto us is meant to look a certain way and it's not left purely up to our intuition about how we would want to be treated. Jesus has defined for us the way in which I think this summary of his teaching uh, ought to look like. Uh, thus, if we divorce the golden rule from its context, we're in danger of evacuating it of all its content. So I want us, in our consideration of this verse together today, to be sensitive to the context of this verse. Why does it appear where it does? And what place does this uh, golden rule have in the overall Sermon on the Mount? I remind you of what we've seen so far in the Sermon on the Mount and the structure of this sermon in Matthew 5 through 7. The sermon begins, Jesus stands upon the mountain, he calls his disciples close, and he begins to speak. And he gives in verses 2 through 11 what we often refer to as the Beatitudes, various blessings on certain ways of life and certain virtues and promises that then accord with those blessings. He's describing by way of a kind of preamble or introduction uh, almost in poetic and proverbial language what life in the kingdom ought to look like. Uh, then we have kind of something of the thesis statement or um, uh, kind of the idea that introduces Jesus' moral teaching contained in Matthew 5, 17 through 18. If you'd uh, look there for just a moment on the other page, Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is making clear from the word go as he begins to introduce kingdom ethics and how we're to live in his new kingdom. He's making it clear that his ministry will be in continuity with the law and the prophets. His is not what could be called an antinomian ministry or an anti-law ministry. No, he himself is the great lawgiver. He is the true and greater Moses. He comes now as the prophet of God uh, who will speak God's commandments to his people and they will listen to him. He is the fulfillment of everything the law and the prophets anticipated and he speaks with unprecedented moral and legal and ethical authority both to interpret the law of the Old Testament and both to fulfill it and even to lay down new laws if he sees fit. He never says in this sermon, thus saith the Lord, but rather what? I say unto you. He speaks with unparalleled moral authority, the kind of moral authority that accords only to God himself. And indeed, this is the impression he will leave upon his hearers, which we'll consider later at the end of Matthew 7 as he speaks with such authority, not like their scribes, we read at the end of Matthew 7. So this is how he introduces his moral teaching by saying it's a ministry of continuity 
with what we've had in the law and the prophets. And then he does just that. He speaks about various moral issues and gives teaching, lofty teaching, with respect to Christian ethics and kingdom ethics. He speaks to murder and anger, to adultery and lust, to marriage and divorce, to oaths and swearing, to love and retaliation, to personal piety, to prayer, to fasting, to giving to the needy. He speaks to anxiety and worry. He speaks about judging others. He talks about pursuing God. Uh, This is the law of the kingdom. This is Jesus teaching for his new covenant people, his kingdom citizens. Now Jesus, in Matthew 7, verse 12, is closing this section. And he's giving a rule that he states is the essence or the heart or the summary of all the law and the prophets. So here's how I understand the Sermon on the Mount. There's a kind of what theologians will call an inclusio, basically like bookends of a section between Matthew 5, 17, and 18 and the reference there to the law and the prophets. And Jesus positioning himself in relation to them as he begins to teach his moral principles. And this statement in 7.12, Jesus again returns to the issue of the law and the prophets. And he gives us a summary statement of all he's taught us concerning our relationship with others. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, for this is the law and the prophets. He's summarizing his teaching and again bringing us back to this issue of the law and the prophets and his teaching on it. These two bookends, uh, they bring together this moral teaching from our Lord. And the rest of the material in Matthew 7 is Jesus talking now more about how people respond to this teaching of the Lord. Will they pursue the broad way that leads to destruction or the narrow way that leads to life? He'll talk about false teaching and not listening to false teachers and being discerning with respect to false teachers. Uh, And then, of course, he'll talk about building our house on the rock, of course, who is Christ and his kingdom. Uh, Now, this statement in 712 isn't saying that this principle articulates every detail of the law and the prophets. That's obvious. However, with respect to our posture toward others, our duty toward others, our relationship with others, this functions, Jesus says, as a summation of what the law and the prophets require of us. And thus, Jesus says, this is the law and the prophets. He could not, by any other language, elevate this principle in this law to a higher station of importance. It's, it's in essence saying, if you were to go back in time to when Jesus first gave these words, he's saying, if you want to know what the Bible teaches, in a word, concerning your responsibility in relationships with others, be it in your family, or in the Christian community, or in the wider community, I could sum it up for you in one word, the whole Bible, the whole law and the province with respect to your duty toward others. Do unto them as you would have them do unto you. I'd like to open up this verse under two main headings this morning. We'll consider first, we'll ask the question, uh, what does the golden rule assume? And then secondly, we'll ask, what does the golden rule require? Uh, What does the golden rule assume? What does the golden rule require? First, let's consider, what does this golden rule Uh, That's obviously not a term there in the Bible. I think it's an acceptable term to use in reference to this verse. What does this golden rule assume? And there are three things I'd like to draw your attention to. First of all, uh, the golden rule assumes we as human beings need simple principles to live by. The golden rule assumes that we as human beings in our human nature need simple principles to live by. Have you noticed how Jesus loves to do this? 
Uh, He does this all the time. Jesus loves to take large and complex ideas and summarize and simplify them down to their essence. Uh, He loves to take vast and complex doctrinal or ethical content and make it simple and relatable and memorable. It's it's, it's, sort of a school of uh, teaching uh, when you consider Jesus here. He's quite a master at this in helping us understand things and put things together. He usually does this by using a kind of compact and concise and profound, maybe proverbial statement that seems to cut through all the confusion, all the questions and all the objections and seems to go right to the heart of the matter. I remind you of some of these sayings from our Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What are these simple and muscular statements doing? Uh, They are capturing in concise and memorable language the essence and the heart of Jesus' teaching to his disciples. Now, that does not nullify or relativize the details of Jesus' teaching. Occasionally, there will be bad actors who will try to do that kind of thing. You You will be talking about some detail or prescription of the Lord, and they'll try to back away to some kind of larger summary prescription. Well, hey, I'm just trying to love my neighbor. Oh, don't talk to me about my sex life. You know? Oh, hey, hey, I'm just trying to do in others as I would have them do unto me. Uh, don't talk to me about uh, my duty to pray. Uh, people will do that kind of thing. But, though this doesn't nullify the details, there is an effort here on Jesus' part to summarize by a large principle, a memorable axiom what it is he wants to get across. What is the heart of the matter? And here he's doing that after uh, preaching this sermon. He's summarizing it in one memorable and helpful principle. And Jesus does this because he knows us. He understands us. He knows that we as human beings need to be able to categorize material in terms of simple principles just helpful to us he's condescending to help us to to gather kind of the spirit of the issue I do this with my own kids sometimes I will be giving my two older children uh, rules about what they're to do with respect to their youngest brother and it will involve some details don't do this do that and then sometimes uh, I will just say look don't make Judah cry if you are wondering what are the rules what were the things dad said just remember this umbrella principle don't make Judah cry, and you are unlikely to go wrong. Well, that's a somewhat trivial example, but what does it reflect? Uh, children are helped by that. They're given this, this, this line, this principle they can hold on to, to help them in their right conduct. That's something of what Jesus is doing here. He's giving us this principle, this axiom, to help us. If I get lost in some of the details, if I have trouble navigating my duty and responsibility, if I get confused about this or that, remember this. If you do unto others as you would have them do unto you, uh, you are not likely to go wrong. Uh, That is a summation of our moral duty toward one another. All right, that's the first assumption. Second thing, the golden rule assumes, the golden rule assumes there is such a thing as wholesome self-regard and self-interest. The golden rule assumes there is such a thing as wholesome self-regard and self-interest. You gotta hold this together in your reading of Jesus in the Bible. You appreciate the Bible will sometimes speak of a kind of self-love and self-interest and self-centeredness that, of course, is wrong. We're told to deny ourselves. The kind of selfishness that would be self-righteous or or set ourselves up as superior to others. It would be 
absorbed in our own needs and expecting others to be absorbed in our own needs. Self at the center of the universe. Self at the center of the family. Self at the center of the church. Self at the center of the community. Self at the center even before God. Well, that kind of thing is regularly censured and condemned and spoken against in the teaching of our Lord. And yet, uh, there is another kind of self-regard, a self-interest that is simply holy and upright. Uh, There is a kind of attention. The Lord will not commend us if we fail to clothe ourselves, uh, if we fail to seek to make provision for our basic needs in life. Uh, if we uh, fail to find enjoyment in the good gifts he has given us, right? There's a kind of attention we give to ourselves at the level of our deepest needs and desires and wants that the Bible would commend. God expects us to live uh, in a certain way with respect to our own wants and desires and to look after those basic wants and desires. I'm not talking about carnal things now. I'm just talking about basic things. There is a basic kind of self-regard and attention to self that the Bible commends. And it is this kind of love that Jesus assumes is present in us here. We take care of ourselves in a certain way. We look after ourselves in a certain way. There is a kind of treatment we want from others with respect to ourselves. Well, You can project that onto others. It's a wholesome kind of regard that people have for themselves and you can have regard for them. Our love for ourselves and our attention to our own good and our own needs becomes a model or a paradigm for how we should care for others. Okay, the third thing the golden rule assumes. The golden rule assumes we as human beings need simple principles to live by. The golden rule assumes, secondly, there is such a thing as wholesome self-love and self-interest. Thirdly, maybe most importantly, the golden rule assumes we have a solidarity with our neighbors in our shared wants, needs, and desires. The golden rule assumes we have a solidarity. That means we all the same shared standing together. We have a solidarity with our neighbors, everyone around us, in our shared wants, needs, and desires. Okay, so from one vantage point, human nature and human personality can be seen as quite broad, vast, and diverse among different people. There are so many different kinds of people in the world. Aren't there? There are introverts and extroverts, tall and short, people of differing backgrounds and cultures and preferences, people with differing interests and hobbies and personalities, and people with different goals in life. You take this church, for example, even in this congregation of a fairly modest size, there is an oppressive array of different types of people in this church. And I'm tempted to start naming people and contrasting them, but I will exercise the filter. (laughs) Uh, Some of us... uh, have big personalities, uh, a vast capacity to communicate. Uh, Others are more reserved, maybe more uh, laconic in the way they express themselves. Uh, Some of us love a warm hug. Others of us are good things. Keep a safe distance. Uh, I could go on, but the point is, it's amazing, isn't it, how different people are. God has created so many different kinds of people. Parents, you know this in your own families, like your kids. Isn't it amazing in one family how different human personality and human character uh, can be even in a shared family. Uh, However, though it's true, uh, there is a lot of differences that exist between people. From another vantage point, human nature and human personality is quite standard and homogenous. One could even say basic. The very existence of a society depends on a sort of underlying human nature that we all share. Society becomes impossible if we don't have shared 
traits. Uh, there is such a thing as human nature, and the laws of supply and demand are predicated upon it. Uh, the ads that drive our consumer choices assume it. Uh, online algorithms that right now are even uh, collecting data on you uh, on your phones, probably recording things that I'm saying and going to suggest ads to you later today based on uh, this sermon. Those algorithms depend on something about human nature that's shared. Uh, human nature and behavior in most ways is fairly standard and predictable. You can see this in songs and in art and in poetry and in books and in literature. There is a common human language, a common human experience that unites and binds us all together as a race. You might think of it in more personal terms. Uh, we all laugh and we all cry. Doesn't matter who your parents were, doesn't matter what country you were born in, doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, we all laugh and we all cry. We all experience joy. We all experience sorrow. We all experience encouragement and we all experience discouragement. We all deal to some degree with stress anxiety and fear. We all love and wish to be loved. We all want to be fed and clothed. We all wish to flourish and prosper. We all feel pain. We all get sick. We will all one day die. I've used the illustration before of a song that was on, I think in the 80s, that was put out by the police. Uh, they had a song called Russians. This is during the Cold War. And the final line at the end of every verse of that song, a sting, as he's called, uh, would say, I hope the Russians love their children too. And he was appealing to Russians and Americans. Look, we all love our kids, right? You know, whatever might divide us, we want a future for our children. It's assuming something about human nature. Okay, now here's the point. This shared humanity creates the conditions and context for us to understand one another and to have insight into one another's needs. That's what Jesus is assuming here. To genuinely empathize with others. I can understand you, my friend, not because I've walked a mile in your shoes, but because I'm human just like you. I mean, at least to some degree. I can understand you because I'm human just like you are. It doesn't mean I can understand everything about you, but I can understand a whole lot about you just by virtue of the fact that we both partake in human nature and human experience. Okay, so Jesus here in our text is trading on this solidarity we all share in basic human experience. And he assumes there is a shared body of wholesome and healthy wants and desires and needs that bind us together. And this will become the grounds of his command, or at least the way he's framing it that we would do unto others as we would have them do unto us. He's assuming a certain amount of content in that phrase as we would have them do unto us. He's assuming we all know what that means. How do you want people to treat you? Treat others in that way. There is a common human nature, human need, human experience that is being assumed in that statement. And to be clear, this text is not eliminating all difference in personalities. Uh, nor is the Lord saying it's perfectly all right for you to be insensitive to the real differences that exist between you and others. We should acknowledge there are differences between people and we should endeavor to be sensitive to those differences. But that's not the focus of the golden rule. The focus of the golden rule of Matthew 7 verse 12 is not on the things that make us different from one another, but on the things that make us the same. So, so the golden rule is not interested at this stage in the five love languages 
or the Enneagram or what you scored on your Myers-Briggs, uh, different things that might indicate differences between people. No, it's interested in what we share in human nature and in human experience, and he is teaching us on the basis of that shared solidarity. All right, we've asked the question, what does the golden rule assume? Now we ask, what does the golden rule require? What does the golden rule require? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? There's just one thing the golden rule requires, right? I'm going to summarize it in terms of five things, okay? Five things the golden rule requires. Four are expressed positively, one expressed negatively. What does the golden rule require? Number one, the golden rule requires self-awareness for the benefit of others. The golden rule requires self-awareness for the benefit of others. Now, I will say, even as I read that, uh, self-awareness will benefit you, will benefit me, uh, but this is self-awareness for the benefit of others. The golden rule requires a certain degree of self-analysis and self-awareness. If you're not able to be self-aware and self-critical, if you're not able to have self-knowledge, you are going to struggle to get what Jesus is saying and to faithfully execute what Jesus is calling us to. And here's what I mean. The golden rule requires me to think about how I'd like to be treated. It starts with me taking inventory of my desires and my needs and my wishes. Again, I'm not talking now about the five love languages or how you especially, you know, um, experience, you know, love in different ways. That's not exactly what I have in mind. I don't have in mind sinful desires. I don't have in mind desires that are peculiar to you. I'm talking about basic needs and wants that I feel simply as a human person. And the way this is meant to work for us, self-awareness, is that I'm to look at my own heart, look inward, and realize that I want to be loved. I want to be accepted. I want to be cared for. I want to be looked after. I want to be served. I want others to reach out to me when I'm down and doing poorly. I want to be encouraged. I don't want others to hurt me and sin against me. I don't want others to speak evil of me. You see, the kind of things. I'm self-aware enough to know what it feels like to be lonely or disregarded or discouraged or unloved or uncared for. And that self-awareness, that self-knowledge, what I feel at the level of basic human nature and basic human experience, I can project onto others. This self-awareness says, you know, if I were in Jack's shoes, I'd want someone to call me and see how I'm doing. You know, if I was going through what Jane is going through, I'd want someone to show up with a warm cup of coffee or a meal. Or negatively, you know, I wouldn't want someone to talk about me in this way. And therefore, I'm not going to talk about them in this way. I wouldn't want to be treated this way myself. Therefore, I won't treat them in this way. I don't want to be sinned against, offended, lied about, criticized, retaliated against, misjudged. I don't want to be the object of someone's anger or slander or lust or judgment. Therefore, I won't treat them that way myself. I want to be forgiven. Therefore, I will forgive others. I want to experience grace. Therefore, I will extend grace. I want others to forbear with me, be long-suffering with me, and therefore, I will forbear and be long-suffering with others. You see, we're to stop and consider 
what it feels like. We're to catch ourselves and ask, now how would I feel? Would I want others to treat me with the same measure with which I treat them? We're to become self-aware and realize how others' actions influence us and how our actions influence others. So that's the first requirement. We're to have a certain self-awareness. And this self-awareness is meant to be for the benefit of others. The second thing the golden rule requires. Secondly, the golden rule requires thoughtfulness about the needs of others. I'm self-aware about my own needs, and thereby I become more thoughtful about the needs of others. Simply put, if I am to be thoughtful about my own needs and desires, I can become more thoughtful and more aware about the needs and desires of others. My knowledge of myself in this case is meant to enlarge my knowledge of others and to become more invested in others. The golden rule is a call to consider others, to consider how they, like you, can become discouraged or may become offended or may feel misjudged or mistreated or how they may feel isolated or ostracized or unwelcome. They may feel estrangement and alienation. They may feel anxious and scared. They may feel sinned against and put down. You see, the golden rule requires me not only to be self-aware, but to be self-aware in order that I may give thought and care to the needs and desires of others. And this is a crucial point. This comes up not only in Matthew 7, verse 12, but numerous other sayings of Jesus. The golden rule is designed to make us as followers of Christ others-oriented. To be others oriented. The golden rule is a call for me to become absorbed in the condition and needs of other people. I am looking out for them. I'm considerate of them. I take thought of them. And just as I wish for others to love me, care for me, do good to me, so I will love and care for others and seek to do good to them. I take thought of them. I'll just say, if we are going to live as the Lord calls us to live in being others-oriented, of giving thought to how others feel, how our actions influence other people, you will have to swim uh, 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 upstream against the current of our culture, right? I don't know that, that any generation in American history has been more encouraged uh, to center their lives on themselves not only are we kind of the most selfish and self-centered generation in American history, uh, what is so striking in the last maybe 10 years or so, especially, though it goes back way further than this, uh, is the degree to which love of self and total absorption in self uh, is seen as a virtue. Like it's a good thing for me to think about, number one, all the time. Listen, if you're going to be a Bible Christian, a follower of Christ, you will need to become countercultural in this way. And you will need to learn how to read and discern the cultural lies that are being told to you about yourself. Like, I don't know where you are today, but I can guarantee you this is true of everyone. You are not as awesome as you think you are. <laughs> I am not as awesome as I think I am. And you may say, well, Alex, some people here have low self-esteem. Not low enough, according to the Bible, Okay. I'm being somewhat humorous, but in almost every instance in the scriptures, we are not given kind of this therapeutic, you know, you are awesome, you need to believe in yourself. Who was the guy on SNL? He would stand in front of the mirror and he would say, I'm bright enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. He would say that to himself every morning when he wakes up. 
uh, that's not a Christian attitude. No, rather we're to orient ourselves more and more on the way God sees us and God thinks about us. And it's only through that that we can attain a proper view of self, the view of self that God wants us to have. And it will be a view of self that makes us the object of his love and his salvation in Jesus Christ and the privilege of being his sons and daughters. But we must start with a sober view of ourself. Well, in this text, one of the things we must see Jesus is trying to get across is that you are not the center of the universe. And rather, Jesus wants his disciples and his followers not to be so absorbed in self, but to become absorbed in others, to live for others, to love their neighbors as themselves, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Okay, the third requirement of this text. The golden rule requires self-awareness for the benefit of others, requires thoughtfulness about the needs of others. Number three, the golden rule requires practical action for the good of others. And I'll just be very brief here. Requires practical action for the good of others. The verb is do. Do. Act. Take a step. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He doesn't say speculate or think about it or hypothesize or consider in the abstract. The verb is do. The simple point I want to advance is that the golden rule requires that my love for others is to actually become practical at some point. I do practical good for my brothers and sisters and to people in the community. I act in love toward her. I do not sin against him. I actually serve my brother. I care for my sister. I take concrete steps, deliberate action to do good to my neighbor, to bless my brothers and sisters. We may not say, uh, well, it was in my heart to do them good. No, the Lord wants us to take concrete steps to engage in practical action for the good of others. And we're going to see in this gospel, in many places, Jesus will tell us what that will look like. It will look like discreet acts of benevolence and kindness. Actions for the upbuilding and the good of other people. Actions that help needy people. In fact, in one discourse section in Matthew's gospel, Jesus pictures the judgment and in the judgment, he's talking about the deeds upon which God's people will be judged and what marks those who were the goats and marks those who were the sheep. And he talks about all these things the sheep did for needy people. All the ways in which they treated others as they would have others treat them. All the ways they loved their neighbor. Things like clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and taking cups of cold water and these sorts of things. Jesus is identifying action, doing that was virtuous and right and good. Well, we should see in this golden rule, it is a call not to theory, but a call to practical good toward others in our actual relationships. All right, the fourth thing the golden rule requires. The golden rule requires, fourthly, that this treatment be extended to all others. This treatment should be extended to all others. Jesus says, do unto others. Does that exclude anyone? Is there anyone who doesn't come under the command of this text? We're to do unto everyone. It's not going to be in the same way. We can't possibly do good to literally every other person. But in terms of the categories of people, there's no one who's excluded from our moral responsibility here. It's, it's important as a Christian, as a matter of kind of 101 Christian life stuff, 
There is no one save Satan and his legions who you are not called to love. Uh, you could look at your nearest family member, called to love them. You look at your brothers and sisters in the church, you're called to love them. Uh, you could look at lost people, you're called to love them. You could look at your most aggressive, acrimonious opponent and enemy. You're to love them also. There's no one, no one who falls outside the pale of Christian love. Well, similarly in this text, when we talk about practical love and expression and doing to others as we would have them do to us, no one falls outside the pale. So it starts, begins right with the most narrow spheres of our lives. Husbands, real talk for a second. You are called in other places to love your wife. There's particular commands given to husbands. And there's sacrifices that you are to make for her. There is a picturing of Christ himself that you're to model in your marriage and you're to aspire to that. And you're asked the Lord to help you to do that in your marriage. But don't fail to recognize that these other commands like this have an application on how you live toward your wife as her husband. You could put your wife's name in the blank. You take others out and put your wife's name there. You can do that. Do unto my wife as I would have her do unto me. Wives, same deal. It is your responsibility to do unto your husbands as you would have them do unto you. A believing children here, are you doing unto, unto your peers as you would have them do unto you? And that most narrow sphere of the family, we are to observe the golden rule. In the church family, uh, does this characterize our relationships? As we look around at our brothers and sisters, do we treat one another by the same measure with which we hope they will treat us? Do I do to my brother and sister what I want them to do to me? And, and you see immediately, in this sort of therapeutic, self-centered culture, how this mitigates against a consumeristic view of church. So, so, so churches, sadly, will often like market themselves to people entirely based on their felt sense of need, and everything the church has to offer is how to make you feel great, and for you to realize your potential, and for your needs to be met, and it's all about you, man. Uh, that is not the way it would go in the church, right? Where we're to, as Paul says in Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. It's what to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. But friends, this rule, I see no reason why it should not be applied outside the community of faith. I, I know this is a sermon given to the Lord's kingdom citizens. It has special application in the context of the faith community. But I don't see any limitation in the text. I'm to treat my lost and secular and pagan friends on the basis of this text. Which, by the way, I think is one of the greatest biblical arguments or biblical imperatives for why we should evangelize our neighbors. If someone did not bring to me the gospel, uh, I would be headed to hell. Uh, I am safe in Christ because my neighbors at some point, people thought I gotta give the gospel to him. Give the gospel to his parents. Well, similarly, the Lord has given you the word of life, how precious it is to us, the gospel of grace. Will you give it to others? Will you do unto others as you would have them do unto you? And for so much of our content, we could go on and on with implications. But the simple point I want to identify here is there is no limitation given in this passage to how far our love for others should extend, to who we should treat like we want to be 
treated. Okay, fifth and final requirement of this text. I'll review my outline for the note takers. The golden rule requires self-awareness for the benefit of others. The golden rule requires thoughtfulness about the needs of others. The golden rule requires practical action for the good of others. The golden rule requires that this treatment be extended to all others and now negatively. The golden rule does not require reciprocity from others. The golden rule does not require reciprocity from others. What is reciprocity? You scratch my back, I scratch yours. You do to me as I do to you. Notice this, Jesus is saying that my treatment of others is to be based not on how I'm treated by them, but on how I wish to be treated by them. My treatment of others is based not on others' treatment of me, but on how I wish for them to treat me. It is based then on what is good and right before God. And it is based on love for them and love for God and a faith-filled commitment to do his word. Friends, got to settle this. We as Christians are not permitted to go about the world in a quid pro quo, tit for tat, you scratch my back and I will scratch yours kind of a way. That is not our ethic. Fairness and equity. You do for me, I'll do for you. You spit in my eye, I spit in yours. That's not our ethic. We are not told in this statement, it's often manipulated this way, but we are not told to treat others in the way they treat us. We are not told that the standard of my treatment of others becomes the way they treat me. Love toward our neighbors, love toward our brothers and sisters can exist even when there is a great disparity between the way they treat me and I treat them. Husbands, love for your wife can exist even when there is a great disparity between the way she treats you and you treat her. Same going the other way. I'm not looking for fairness and equity in the relationship. Love bears the imbalance. Better yet, love will create the imbalance. You see that? You love others according to the golden rule. All kinds of imbalances are going to be created. If you take Paul's words to heart, outdo one another in showing honor, imbalances will be created. That's the blessed thing about love. It's based on our commitment to do the Lord's will. It's based on our love for God, and it's based on our love for others, not whether I get mine, but whether I'm treated in all the ways I think that I should be treated. I can hypothesize about how I wish to be treated, and that can become for me a guide in how I might treat others. But I may not demand that before I do rightly before you, you must treat me the way I want to be treated. That's not what this rule is calling for. It does not require reciprocity in order to be realized. We may love people like this if they never love us back. We may treat people in this way. They never treat us the same. And brothers and sisters, at this point, we should all be chastened. I'm, I'm chastened even as I speak. We all need to abandon our excuses. We are far too quick to justify our unloving conduct and behavior based on how others have treated us. I hear this all the time. 
I hear it among four-year-old kids. I hear it among people who have been Christians for 30 years. Well, you don't understand what he did to me. Well, she said that, and that set me off. Surely you could understand. We do this all the time. But it's a sub-Christian ethic. You see the Christian standard, love unconditionally. Treat, treat others by a higher and godlier standard than the treatment that you yourself receive and tolerate the imbalance. Create the imbalance. Don't treat others on the basis of how they treat you. Treat them on the basis of how you wish to be treated. Treat them on the basis of the pattern we're given in Scripture. Friends, the standard of love is not to treat others how they treat you. No, Jesus in this text is giving us a different standard, a different rule. We are to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. But now, in closing, let me say this. This is not the only standard the Bible provides for how we're to treat others. It's not the only rule and pattern of love we're given. I think I can say this. It's not even the best rule, the pattern that we're given. This teaching of our Lord was given in the early days of his ministry among his disciples. And it is a beautiful and golden and unending and always relevant rule. But Jesus will go on to provide an even greater standard and a greater pattern for the love his people are to bear toward others. Our love toward others is to be conditioned not only by our own felt sense of need and desire, our love toward others is to be conditioned by the love of Jesus Christ himself for needy sinners. Jesus will go on to say in the upper room, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. John 15, 3, greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. Oh, it's a good pattern. It's a good rule. It's a right rule to treat others as you would have them treat you. But love can rise higher and live by an even higher rule than that. Jesus' teaching would advance and mature and progress. And he would teach us that the gospel itself the Son of God laying down his life for unworthy and unlovely people is to be the pattern of our love for others. Jesus will tell us that the greatest model of love is the man laying down his life for his friends and then he would show us that in his own life. Dying for the sins of his people. Oh, love bears the imbalance. Love creates it. Aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful? God has not treated us the way we have treated him. We were considering this in the equip class. We were talking about Adam. Genesis 3.15. The promise that the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. Think of the context. God created them, gave them everything. Walked with them. And they ally themselves, like we all have, with Satan. Question his goodness and his righteousness and his justice. Sin and brokenness and 
fracture and alienation enter the world. And what does God do? He makes a promise to save us. He doesn't respond by vanquishing us. No, love creates an imbalance, and a balance none of us could repay. No, it is an imbalance created by the sufficient work of the Lord Jesus Christ in our place, where we bring our unrighteousness and our filthy rags, where we bring our sin. I tell you, grace will abound much more. The blood of Jesus Christ will overwhelm us and save us and cleanse us. Friends, that is the greatest model, the highest pattern of our treatment of one another. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so sorry for how self-absorbed and self-centered we so often are. You have shown us the path of righteousness, this glorious picture of the new humanity, the new kingdom. In this kingdom, how we can live and walk in relationship with others. But so often, our whole world is fixated on ourselves and us being treated in exactly the way we want to be treated. And holding out against other people, even our spouses or our children or our parents or our brothers and sisters in the church or our co-workers will hold out against them because we have not received from them what we think we're owed. God, forgive us. And would you please come through your word and through the communion of saints and please reorient our minds. We don't want to think along the lines of how a sinful world would have us think. We want to think along the lines of the kingdom. We want to be people of the kingdom, people of the way. We want to think as you would have us think and to do as you would have us do. Awaken within our hearts real, genuine love for others. The kind of love that is becoming of those who have experienced such lavish love in Christ. And help us to be those who actually do practical good to others. Who sacrifice for others. Who treat others as we would have them treat us. Help us, Lord, in these things. I pray for all of us here. We find ourselves in relationships where we, we have been selfish and we have lived by an ethic, a rule other than this one. We know it's unpleasing to you, displeasing to you. We would live as you would have us live. And Lord, we see the pattern you have laid forth is good and right and it's beautiful. And you have lived in this way yourself through your son. Lord, you have shown such extraordinary love to needy sinners. May we become those who love to reflect that love and regard and treatment toward others as those shaped by the gospel. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.